Have you had a busy week in the Leffin market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today. When we'll be taking a look at specified asset dispositions, discussing United Group's bid for wind Hellas, and finding out if ESG is just a load of rubbish. But first, we will be taking a look at the deals in the market this week. That's right, it's August and there's not a lot going on. Uh, In High Yield, we'll be taking a deeper dive into the main event, which is United Group. Um, And in addition, Vary Group might be opting for an IPO sooner than we thought. In the leveraged loans world, Veritas was lonely in the market with a 200 million euro and 380 million dollar tranche with price talk at 475 and 500 basis points over Eurobor and LIBOR respectively. Next up, we're back with Caitlin Carey for the Covenant Close-Up. Thanks for being with us, Caitlin. Thank you for having me, Kat. Lovely to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about specified asset dispositions. So, Caitlin, can you give us some context here? Um, Just thinking more holistically about how asset sales are typically dealt with in high yield bonds um, and loans with bond style covenants. Um, So typically there's a covenant that will permit um, the credit group to sell assets, but it places certain conditions around how the the parameters around how the proceeds have to be applied. Um, And typically the requirements are that the proceeds must be um, either reinvested into the group. So, you know, add back into the group in terms of, you know, capital expenditure, new assets into the group, um, or used to repay debt. Um, And, you know, the rationale behind that is that you don't want the actual asset, you know, assets of the group to end up depleted um, so that the creditors don't get their money back. Um, But there have been several developments um, that have sort of turned this general concept on its head. um, And one of these is the specified asset disposition concept. Um, And essentially what it says is that the company can distribute um, any proceeds of specified asset dispositions Um, And and those uh, are a bit of a misnomer um, because rather than actually being specified as in, you know, needing to be particular assets of the business, um, it gives the company um, the ability to um, include any asset dispositions um, as long as the assets disposed of represent less than a certain proportion of EBITDA. What's interesting is that it's not actually a, a threshold for like the, the, the fair market value of those assets or um, for the amount of proceeds that you get. It's um, the proportion of EBITDA generated by those assets. So the fair market value could be, you know, um, you know way higher. These, these could be collateral assets, for instance. So it just it doesn't specify which assets just as long as they have generated less than the relevant proportion, you know, 15, 20, 25 percent of EBITDA of the business. Generally, these are subject to a leverage threshold. You can only make the distributions of these proceeds um, if the company meets a leverage test. Um, 
sometimes it's a you know no worse concept too that if, if leverage you know either is met or doesn't deteriorate on a pro forma basis and you were saying that could provide some comfort to investors um, but on the other hand, where they've been setting these leverage thresholds, you know, to me, it seems quite high. Often these leverage thresholds are set very close to, if not at, opening leverage. So where have you been seeing this clause so far? So this is something where we've seen a bit of an accelerating trend. Um, we saw something like this concept um, as far back as 2018 um, in the Axo Nobel deal, um, now called rebranded to Norion. Um, I'm not sure if I pronounced that correctly, um, but it, it sort of has accelerated um, over time. And this year, 2021 year to date, um, we've seen it in nine loan deals that we've reviewed um, and, and two bond deals. So some pretty serious growth there. Well, it wouldn't be a covenant closeout without some outrage, Caitlin. Uh, what do you have to say about this clause? It's, it's, it's mind boggling to me because, you know, you think that the assets of the group, you know, ought to be protected for the benefit of creditors. Um, and, you know, this provision is just one of several provisions that just kind of flips that concept on its head and says, you know, no, actually you can sell assets. Yeah, you can just send those proceeds straight to the shareholders. And why are, is this concept allowing additional flexibility here beyond what's already allowed under the existing um, restricted payments carve-outs. Um, you know, there's already a general basket and a build-up basket and a leverage-based basket. This is a sort of additional capacity built on top of it um, from the proceeds of these asset sales. There's no doubt it's a crazy world out there in sponsor-friendly terms right now. Crazy. I can't wait to see what new and, you know, exciting innovation is going to come our way in September. <laughs> Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our segment on ESG with the lovely ESG analyst, Jack David. Thanks for being with us, Jack. Hi, Kat. Thanks for having me. So I heard ESG is a load of rubbish. Is this the case? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I think I'd have to find myself if I truly believed that. Um, but in all seriousness, it's something uh, you always think about working in ESG. Uh, you're constantly trying to find the balance, really, between assessing things that are material, material financially and in, then in reality what's really going to make a difference. Um, it's not always the same thing and this historically has been the issue. Uh, I guess this week it's, it's come to light with the ex-head um, of ESG investing at BlackRock, Tariq Fancy. He has come forward to say that uh, he feels that throughout his career and all his experience that ESG investing has made no impact in the real world. That's quite a claim. So, I mean, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I understand the point he's making. I think a lot in the in the ESG world would understand and agree in part. Um, he uses an analogy of football, saying that essentially it's like playing a game of football with no referee. Um, at the moment, there's there's a, a lack of rules um, guiding. Uh, investors and also at the corporate level um, essentially these, these leaders are going to be uh, putting profit ahead a lot of the time um, as it's their job to do so and um, you know, making putting stakeholder um, profits above everything else um, 
there are some outliers, of course, they are making good strides. Uh, but on the whole, I think, yeah, there, there needs to be more done. So what kind of data is there to back this claim of Tariq's up? Yeah, I mean, um, in a lot of cases, it's hard to measure the real world impact. Uh, there's, a, there's, of course, like a lot of initiatives and a lot of measures that people are doing. There's increased reporting. Uh, there's a lot of things in place, but uh, ultimately, it's hard, it's hard to measure the real world impact. I think if you take climate change, for example, um, I think Tariq's claims could be pretty accurate. If you look at the latest IPCC report that came out um, quite recently, uh, we're on track to hit um, 1.5 degree um, increase in global temperature by 2040, which is way below uh, the targets really that, that are set out in the Paris Agreement. Um, and then if you look at the recent G20 conference, climate conference, um, the rate in which CO2 has been declining over the last three decades has stayed stable, essentially meaning that all the everything that we've tried to put in into practice in terms of unilateral agreements or um, public awareness, technology, nothing's really made any difference to that rate at which we're, CO2 is actually declining in the real world. It's an incredibly important topic for, I think, everyone listening. Um, why do you think this is? Um, well, I think the football analogy is is actually a good one. Uh, if you you can take um, uh, the example, of, uh, there's there's a few. Uh, well, there's, you see ESG and green funds now that are labelled uh, Article Eight under the SFDR, um, and this the definition for this is a fund which promotes, among other characteristics, environmental or social characteristics, um, and this is in practice quite a vague definition and has led to. Uh, these funds containing oil and gas companies, for example. So this would point to theory that, that these rules aren't really working. Uh, and then I think that there's another example um, with sustainability-linked bonds, which has obviously, obviously become a lot more popular recently. Uh, the guiding principle on these are quite vague, and the, this often leads to unambitious targets. Uh, companies offering these, these bonds and loans uh, often do so to cash in on this greenium or perceived greenium, greenium um, or green premium, and uh, will often uh, are often uh, offering these bonds to make it more attractive to investors and make the the offering more uh, liquid, as opposed to necessarily doing it for environmental reasons or other ESG factors. Mm, right, great. So, what kind of rules could be put in place? Um, I think. A good way to look at it is it's like a process. It's not set in stone how we're doing ESG at the moment. Uh, it's like we're at the beginning of inventing football and uh, we're making up as, as we go along. <laughs> and there's no common understanding at the moment and regulations and mechanisms that, are, that may be in place to guide, uh, guide the industry aren't really there, uh, there yet or in the very early stages. Um, so hopefully, for example, in COP26, we might see um, carbon markets being better defined and Article 6, which is something that was failed in, it failed in the previous COP. Um, at the moment, the global average cost of CO2 is $2 per tonne. Uh, this needs to be more like 50 to 150, according to uh, academics. So, well. yeah, it's quite a way off at the moment. And th this is needed to, in to incentivize investment in green technology. Obviously, we all want some hope. It's an, you know, it can be quite a topic that 
is a bit depressing on occasion, I don't, especially considering when you hear these, these types of things from Tariq Fancy. And, um, but is there hope? I mean, I'm sure there is. There must be. Yeah, I mean, obviously we're behind on climate targets. There are a number of other factors um, that are troubling. You know, there's a lot of data privacy and AI risk that I think will become more of a, we'll see more of an increase in that risk as time goes on. Cybersecurity risk, obviously, across the board. Um, also a long way to go on many of the social factors. Uh, but I think it's in the case of Tariq and looking at IPCC report, um, it's good to, to, to try and use that as incentive to accelerate um, progress on ESG as opposed to just using it as an excuse to carry on business as usual um, with the justification that nothing that's getting done is making any difference anyway. Uh, and hopefully we're not far off seeing some, some real changes put in place. Next up, we'll be having our deep discussion. I'm here with Hugh Simpson, our Head of Research and Analytics, and one of our fantastic credit analysts, Ben Hoskin. So today we're going to be ruminating on United Group. So take us away, Hugh, at what's going on with UG? Yeah, so we've got the, you know, the next chapter in the never-ending story of United Group acquisitions. Um, <clears throat> so they've acquired, they've planned to acquire Wind Hellas, uh, which they announced on Monday. Um, and so since they've been owned by BC Partners, so they took over from KKR back in 2018, uh, they've been on this acquisition spree. So they've got uh, Vivacom and uh, Nova from Bulgaria, and then Tele2, and uh, they've signed an agreement for a controlling stake in Optima Telecom, uh, which I think is going to happen at the end of this year for, for Croatia. Um, so in terms of the Greek markets, they previously took a controlling state in Fortinet, uh, and now they're coming back with uh, with Windhelas. Yeah, and th- so this was an interesting one because um, we looked at the the covenants on the Windhelas bonds in uh, back in 2019 when they were issued, and at the time we noted that the the covenant baskets looked to be set up for a sort of pre-planned portability event um, or some sort of M and A uh, along those lines. So. Um, it, it perhaps wasn't. It's not that not that surprising, um, given you know the shareholders, Golden Tree and, and Cyrus have owned the business since they um, since it was restructured in twenty ten, I believe. Um, and also, although they the bonds had this flexibility baked in in, in twenty nineteen, um, it looks like they're not going to use it because it seems that United Group are just going to repay the notes as part of the acquisition. Yeah, I mean. So I guess what does that mean for the new capital structure? Um, they're probably going to fold it in like they have done with all their uh, recent acquisitions. So Vivacom is a good example. Um, and then in terms of what the debt's actually going to look like, um, it's probable or possible actually that they could do it all with debt. So they haven't actually said what the, the um, purchase price is going to be. But if you look at recent transactions in telcos, then it's anything from uh, like 6 to 14 times EBITDA, most are sort of 7 to 9. Um, given that where this business is, sort of geographically, um, and the history of the country, it's probably at the lower end of that um, common common multiple. So you're looking sort of perhaps six to eight times. Uh, and given that they've got the EBITDA of 111, uh, then the purchase price could be anything from sort of around 700 million to, to 900 million. Um, because they've got the combined EBITDA of the group um, is increasing, that means they could probably fund most of this with secured debt. Uh, and you know keep that cost of financing low, 
if they needed to, because the purchase price was a little bit higher than we've estimated here, they could add some you know, additional picks in. I have seen valuations that are around a billion for this company. So in that case, you're either going to need some more pick or perhaps they're going to have to start putting some, some extra equity contribution back in there just to keep that net leverage at where they did the deal last time, which was about uh, five times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you know, it was interesting. We, so we've been having a look at you know what the capital structure might look like um, and you know possible things they can do. Um, one thing, the one thing we were we did explore was looking at the the pick toggle notes that are already in there. So they've got four hundred seventy six million um, in in the capital stack already outside outside of the restricted group. So issued at Holco level. Um, so one thing we did think about was whether they would use this transaction to sort of opportunistically take those out um reason being obviously because they're they're quite expensive i think nine percent um so but then obviously if, if they were to do that then they would need restrictive payments capacity under the secure notes if they were going to obviously take that debt out with um with debt that's issued inside the group so we, we produced some analysis and had a look at it and how they might do it. It, it does seem possible. Um, it does look like they have capacity under the build-up basket. Um, so Caitlin's had a look. She thinks you know well over 400 million of capacity accumulated since 2019. And then there was also 170 million of pick toggle proceeds used in the Vivacom acquisition last year. So that might have added further to to um, to that basket. So I guess you know if they if they were to to take that out. Um, they wouldn't really be able to issue it at secured level, I guess, because then you'd be pushing it over, over that five times net secured leverage. Um, so maybe they could take something out with, um, take it out with sort of more subordinated debt or some senior notes. Um, that would be one way of doing it. Yeah, or they could just roll over the pick, I suppose. I think what's interesting about calculating that um, build-up capacity is that you've got. I think that 400 is based on sort of some clean EBITDA figures and then it's uh, EBITDA less one and a half interest coverage. If you use the adjusted figure, it goes up quite a lot. But because they've done all these acquisitions, it's it's very hard to pin down exactly how much uh, capacity has been generated in each of these um, each of these periods. On the pick toggle refinancing, yeah, I don't see that they'd actually be pushing that back up. I mean, they're already, already going to be stretching how much secured leverage they've got with this new acquisition if you think they want to do the secured debt which is a much bigger amount up in the um, up in the secured level but then what are we looking at another in the worst case scenario in our sort of upper bound if we think the purchase price is closer to uh, 900 million it's it's what is 200 300 million of extra pick um, but perhaps you're just looking at getting an interest saving on those rather than trying to push it up the structure mm. Yeah, and I guess you know the the other way is um, have a play with the EBITDA figure. So we've we've seen some pretty generous addbacks and um, some serious sort of synergies this year in in some deals. So you know, I guess how much could they squeeze out there to to bring leverage down that way? Yeah, I mean, so they're combining with another business in if they want to get some synergies from their combined operations in Greece. What they've got maybe some overheads that they could share. Um, in terms of the addbacks on the actual business, so in, for for those would be for synergies going forwards. In terms of actual addbacks on this business, I don't think they'd have as many. It's not going to be um, like one of these Coty five hundred percent EBITDA <laughs> addbacks. Uh, so in terms of how much they could squeeze on that front, it's probably not a not a huge amount.
Yeah, no, I'd agree. I'd agree. And then, um, you know, the, the last option is raising debt outside of the restricted group. Um, and then obviously they wouldn't need that capacity if they were going to take out those pick notes that are in there already. So just a, a pick for pick or, or maybe just take more up there or like you say, add some, uh, maybe put some equity in. Um, take your pick. Nice. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, another interesting one on on that note to, to ponder is, is Burger King France. Uh, so I was having a look at their cap structure um, and what it might look like in the not too distant future. Um, so they've also got, so they've got around 200 million of Holco pick that matures in December 22. Um, the protection, protect, call protection rolls off that in December this year. So they, they go down to um, their callable at par. So, you know, I was thinking about what, what they might do with that, given that they've got some other maturities, um, some FRNs and some fixed secured notes going into sort of 22 uh, 2023 and 2024 so they've um, you know how that how that might look how uh, what are they going to do with that yeah I mean what's particularly interesting about this one is that those those picks sit inside temporarily inside the um, senior notes so if there's nothing else they have to deal with those beforehand um, I don't think they're going to be doing a shuffle around the capital structure just because their current leverage including those picks is double digits um, and not in a position to be able to layer that up um, so it's, yeah, it's almost certainly going to get, I think, flipped for, for new pick. Um, the other interesting thing about this deal is that they've got that acquisition of quick. So that's going to be some money coming in and hopefully that will help push this refinancing over the line. I think it was Moody's was saying that they, they think they're going to use some of the 240 million they've got. Um, they need to repay the 80 million state loan. Mm-hmm. They've got, I think, 20 million or something outstanding on the RCF they have to deal with. Um, so perhaps they're just going to make their capital structure look a bit rosier by uh, trimming it down, get it more attractive to investors, and then um, once that's happened, you can start to see um, you know a clearer picture for doing an all-out refinancing with some of the proceeds from this this quick disposal. Yeah, that that would make sense. So maybe they just take that the the pick out of the capital structure altogether. So you know after they've paid back the uh, the state loan. They've still got around 160 million of proceeds from from that quick disposal. Adding that to cash on the balance sheet, we haven't had June numbers yet, but adding that to March's cash, it gives them around 300 million. So maybe they just they take the pick component out, refi the the rest of it, and uh, and looks like that going forward. Yeah, I, we're also going to lose the EBITDA from having that True. quick disposal, which is something like 15, 20 percent of the business. So in terms of how the leverage is going to look, it's not going to get um, necessarily a huge amount better so maybe maybe they keep those picks in um, and have that sort of liquidity option rather than paying down the principal if they don't need to yeah good point food for thought a fascinating case and certainly one to keep high yield analysts awake in August we're nearing the end of the podcast but before you go a quick tidbit so thank you so much for being here with us again Ben no problem at all. Happy to be here. <laughs> so uh, I hear you are working on a deal prediction for IDG, International Design Group. We're suggesting that they take out their senior secured notes, the fixed tranche. So they refinance their um, float, their FRNs in May, um, which obviously have a, a much shorter non-call period. Uh, and they managed to take 175 basis points off the coupon. So that's down to four and a quarter. Um, 
EBITDA growth that meant that they were able to add on 150 million to the principal and still keep leverage in line with the previous deal. Um, and they used that to make an acquisition of uh, a company called Y Design. Um, so yeah, with that in mind, I think the 6.5% on the senior secured notes looks quite expensive now. So the first call date is in November, where it will step down to 103.25. And just looking at it, I think it makes sense for them to um, exercise that option, sort of whilst the market is as hot as it is, and you know, lock in some cheaper financing. Um, so we've run a few scenarios, but the two-year break-even is somewhere around sort of 4.75 and 5%, which seems quite doable. And then they're, they're sponsor owned, so Carlisle and Invest Industrial um, in the business. So we've had a look at some other options there as well uh, in terms of you know, a M&A activity or, or even a dividend. Um, and then secondly, eDreams is, is the stress refinancing. It's similar to our NH Hotels prediction from, uh, that we made sort of earlier this year. That came true over the summer. Um, like I say, so we've seen a number of stress refinancings recently, and we're just suggesting that this could be the next one on the agenda. Um, so there is still some cool protection there, and you know I think essentially what we're saying is the cost of this and any additional interest costs that they might have to pay to refinance. It's sort of acting as like a, a maturity wall insurance premium, um, and just mitigating against the risk of any sort of future lockdowns or reopening complications. Um, and yeah, so they've just posted a trading update as well, which is quite timely, showing bookings for June 2021 was, was slightly higher than June 2019. So, you know, there's a nice sort of reopening story for book runners to spin to investors when they're marketing that deal. And I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Caitlin, to Ben and Hugh and to Jack. And most of all, thank you to you, listener. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. And we look forward to seeing you next time.